great to be here. There's no place in America like this. I'd rather be here than anywhere. Met a lady in the first service from San Diego. I'm like, yeah, good weather, but not Austin. She's like, I'm like, just, you'll, you'll see. You'll see. So it's good to be here. Listen, if you took a super big risk last week and you got up all your nerve to finally come back to church and you came here, I'm super sorry we weren't here last week. Right? Trey texts me at home. He says, oh my gosh, car's in the parking lot at 8.30. We're like, because oh, we don't do Easter service. You guys, you know that, right? We, we feed the homeless under the bridge in 7th. Um, and it was a spectacular, spectacular time. We've done this uh, 10 years now. That was our 10th anniversary. And I think we've got it tuned. I don't know if it's a Swiss watch, but it's certainly Japanese movement. Any watch people, any watch people in, the, in the room? No watch people? Why am I always alone, Trey? Nobody likes soccer. Nobody likes watches. Come on. Anyway, the difference is three times the cost for Swiss movement over Japanese. Never mind. I'll educate you on watches later. But it was, a, it was an amazing, amazing week. Uh, we basically stood back and watched it all happen. And I think what I noticed this past weekend was that the table time is really starting to click. When we first set tables for the homeless, they were kind of like it was awkward and our people were awkward and it was just adventures and awkward. And, and then the first year we had people like bring card games. It kind of worked. And then it, this time it just made sense. So anyway, if you came last week and came back, you must be looking for something because nobody does that twice. But anyway, welcome. So many new faces. Glad to be here. Um, today we, I'm Jason, by the way. We're dropping back into the series that we were working on before Advent happened and before we started the move here and essentially canceled all church activities in January and became remodelers. And so before all of that, we were working on a series called Jesus Quotes the Old Testament. So here's the thinking there. We are a church that camps out almost all the time in the teachings of Jesus. Not a problem, except that Jesus is part of a great witness that I could be faulted, not necessarily guilty, but faulted for sometimes focusing on Jesus to the exclusion of the Old Testament. I've heard that before. And so what we decided to do was let's solve that by let's talk about all the times Jesus quotes the Old Testament in the New Testament. Because apparently there's a reason, and if he's, a, if he's Jesus, he's probably doing decent interpretation. So that's what we're doing. And so it follows a rough chronology. It's not exact, so don't pull out your timeline. But we're going to drop into Matthew 5 today. Actually, for the last time that Jesus in this section uses these words, you've heard it said, but I tell you, if you know me, you know I love that. I absolutely love that teaching style. And so we're going to drop into Matthew 5, verse 38 through 42. Let's read that. This will be familiar to many of you. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Okay, pause. You know, most ancient literature is written thinking of right-handed people. I guess the thinking here is if you're smacked on the right cheek, you're probably backhanded with the right hand. Get it? Kind of insulting. I thought you should know that. Left-handed people. Any left-handed people in the room? Yeah, you, you're an aberration to the ancient people. That's not a point. And that's actually not here either. This is what happens when you do the same thing twice. Rinse, repeat. Anyway, to them on the other cheek also. Verse 40, and, it, and if anyone wants to sue you or take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So let's just make a mental list of all the very difficult things Jesus ever taught, and let's go ahead and add this to that list, right? Not easy teaching. I love this, though. You've heard it said, but I tell you. I love this because this alerts us early in Jesus' teaching career that he's going to acknowledge truth and revelation as it stands, except he's going to say it's not enough. 
It's not far enough. He's going to constantly and consistently say, you've heard this, and while he's not going to argue with the this, he's going to say, but I'm telling you this other thing. He's layering. He's moving in a direction. In this same passage, we've already looked at murder, adultery, divorce, swearing oaths, and now we're going to look at justice and retribution and the question of who belongs and who deserves love. All through this layering building of truth and revelation that Jesus is giving us. Now, at first glance, this might just seem like a teaching on generosity, but I'm going to contend today that in this passage, Jesus is taking aim at the very foundation of Jewish society, and by extension, our own identity. So hang with me. We'll get there in less than 25 minutes. So what is that foundation? Well, it's simply the thinking that goes, we are not them thinking. We're we're not those people thinking, right? This eye for eye and tooth for tooth is something that came to be called the principle of proportionate retribution. In other words, if you steal my chicken, I can't take your child, right? Most societies have something like that in place. But what's interesting is that this isn't a new idea to Jewish philosophy or certainly to the time of Jesus. In fact, this is almost a direct pull from the Code of Hammurabi who predates Mosaic Law by three centuries. So I don't know if you're surprised by that, but not everything that appears in the Bible appears there first. Okay, some anxiety in the room, a little, somebody's something's rising up inside. There are whole percopies of Scripture that are grabs from other sacred texts. You see the layers? You see what I'm talking about? How things lay nicely on top of each other? Jesus is not going to stop with, obviously, a quote from the book of Hammurabi or even the Mosaic Law. He's going to go in a new direction, and so let's follow him. He's just talked about very internal issues, right? Anger, divorce, murder, things like that. And now he's talking about the organizational principles Retribution, revenge, and identity of Jewish society. He's saying, you've heard about justice. You've heard about the limitations on retribution. I want to go deeper, Jesus seems to be suggesting. I want to go beyond what's fair, beyond what's just, to what's ultimately aligned with heaven's heart for all people. And unfortunately, he actually names that maligned category evil people. As if do not resist an evil person is Somewhat unclear, Jesus illustrates with a few examples. In verse 39, he says, Turn the other cheek to one who strikes you on the cheek, insinuating for those who are attacked and insulted, don't retaliate. Take it. How strange. Verse 40, Jesus says, If someone takes you to court to take what's not lawfully theirs, not only give them what they ask for, but give them more. Essentially, go home in your underwear, give them your jacket and your shirt. Scandalous. Verse 41 is an interesting connection that we may not understand at first glance, but Jesus says, if someone commandeers your labor to get their work done, if a Roman soldier literally found a Jewish person, they could say, carry my junk as far as I say. Jesus says, don't only go as far as they ask, but go twice as far. Go a second mile. And in verse 42, as if speaking straight to America, he digs deep this time, and this time these are fighting words, y'all. He says, Basically, he sticks his nose into this category of personal wealth and private property, essentially saying, simply put, don't deny the poor access to what you have accumulated. So maybe this is Jesus just talking about generosity. I think not. He's going deeper. What kind of person is Jesus describing? Do you know anyone like this? Boy, I sure don't know many. Is this even possible to live this way? Interesting question. Let's, let's take this a step at a time. If we don't, it's just, we're just going to tilt. All of these Old Testament passages that Jesus is quoting here in Matthew 5, 38 and 42 come from 
Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and most of them are mirror, mirror images of each other. But what's interesting about all of these passages is that these guys, these passages are talking about laws relating to the generosity of Jews towards Jews. And I want you to notice this. Let's look at Deuteronomy 15. Just, just take note as we're reading of the nationalistic tone and the nationalistic language of this. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord is giving to you, consequently, parenthetically, land that belonged to someone else, we're not going to go there, but Jesus is saying, or, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy is saying, if something belongs to fe- the poor among the fellow Israelites, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. I love that imagery towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near so that you do not show ill will towards the needy. Too much history to go in there for our purposes. But among your fellow Israelites, you see the tone we're talking about? Then may they appeal to the Lord against you and then you may be found guilty of sin. Guilty of what sin? Well, the guilty of lack of generosity towards your people. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all the work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor among you in the land. Listen to this. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. See the nationalistic tones? Clearly, neighborliness was national, was something related to the people of Israel. And you know what's unbelievable about this? I've heard this verse text, this text quoted many times to justify wealth. I've heard people say, well, you know, the poor will always be with you. Yeah, which is why you've always got to be generous. I haven't heard that part of it. Oh, don't worry about the poor. You know what? It's okay. We have, you know, we control almost all the wealth ever invented. But it's okay because, you know, the poor, that's their thing. You know, that must be their irresponsibility. The poor will always be with you. Deuteronomy clearly points out the sin of lack of generosity. And Jesus builds on that by saying, by the way, all people are your people. He summarizes Torah, as you know, but he's going to add something different and something deeply disturbing. This is a tough rabbi to follow. You, you know that by now. Generosity will be required of us, but this is not merely commentary on generosity. Generosity towards evil people, Jesus is going to say. Now, maybe this is literary hyperbole. Maybe this is just him casting some unrealistic expectation so that we can all know how deeply we depend on God. Maybe Jesus is just reminding us to be generous. Maybe this is just a young rabbi trying to shock the crowd. But I think he's up to something innovative here. Here's what I think is going on. Jesus is suggesting that generosity is essential towards our people, which, by the way, are all people. No exemptions for those who insult us. No exemptions for those who disrespect us, right? No exemptions for those who take what does not belong to them that belongs to us. No exemptions for them either. No exemptions for those who abuse the power they have over us, right? The conquering boot of the power that, 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 that's using our labor to build their kingdom. No exemptions. Those are our people too. And finally, no exemptions for the poor who inconvenience our leisure and indulgence with their untimely and inconvenient need. No exceptions. The evil and the enemy categories essentially fall away in the teaching of this young rabbi. Now, maybe I'm stretching this a bit. I could be faulted for that. Certainly, it's possible to overread Jesus, the young rabbi. Fair enough, but let's check in with his words next. Where does he go next? And you, you tell me if this is any easier to handle. Matthew 5, verse 43 through 45 now says, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now you tell me, what kind of world is this young rabbi building? To follow him is to lose any functional classification of evil. There's nothing left. You see, heaven's going to parse between the person and the problem. You see, it's almost never the person who is evil in the world of Jesus. We want to look at that person and say, they are the sinner. They are the outsider in. Somehow they too fit. To follow him is to lose any functional classification of evil. And to take your place, to take our place at his table of mercy and grace that he is setting means we're going to have to render our definition of enemy as well. Here's what I think he's doing. He's attacking our exclusion-inclusion mechanism. You say, what is that, preacher? Oh, we all have it. It's what defines us. It's what makes us who we are. It's gone in the teaching of this rabbi. This is what gets him killed, I might offer, as he moves forward in his public ministry. You've heard about justice, Jesus would say. You've heard about taking care of your own. That's great. That worked back then. Listen to me now. I'm going to add a layer to that. All people are your people. It's not good enough anymore to say, well, this is just for us. This is, this. Jesus is going to say, drop the walls, move past all those tribes. All people are your people. You see, because Revelation is moving somewhere, it's moving forward, and particularly and specifically, it's moving to include a new group of people that until recently were left out. You say, I don't want to go there. I'm telling you it's the direction of the gospel. You've got nothing left except institution of religion if you don't want to move with Jesus in that direction. You see, what dies on the cross for us is our maintenance of those categories of evil and enemy that come to define who we are. You say, you can't be serious, preacher. All people are God's people? Really? Any baby boomers in the room? Let's try Steve Miller Band's little list of deplorables. You ready? Anybody know who Steve Miller Band is? Thank you, Trey. Right on cue. How about little Steve Miller Band's little list? How about the, the picker and the grinner and the lover and the sinner? How about the joker, the smoker, and the midnight toker? All the millennials say, what the even heck is that? <laughs> That's okay. We can pull some millennial music too. How about Peter Bradley Adams' list of, of undesirables? How about the drifters and the outlaws and the gamblers and the jokers? And these are actually lyrics to songs. I'm not joking. The crooks and the clowns and the losers and the talkers and the cowboys. All people? All people. No exceptions. Yeah, but... Yeah, but those people too. Yeah, but you don't know, you have no idea. Follow this rabbi, and that will have to die too. See, it's the layering that moves me in this passage. I could hover over Matthew 5 for the rest of my days. It's this, you've heard it said, but I tell you, this, uh, this idea that that was true, and now I'm going to add this truth to it. It was, that was rock solid, and that's all you had to do, but now I'm going to add this other thing. You've heard it said, but I tell you. So here's a warning to us. Eventually, teaching like this is going to end up costing this young rabbi his life. It was too much. He pushed too hard, and he did it too publicly. He effectively erased any uniqueness that was left around the people of Israel, claiming that all people were figured in to the redemptive love of God. I've been working on this passage for a couple weeks now, and I'm not going to lie, it would have been easier to skip. These are hard words. This feels daunting. In my life, in the life of this community, this feels difficult. Here's why. Evil and enemy are cherished categories and organizing principles. They literally create organization around who we are and who we're not, you see. Maintaining these categories actually become how we define ourselves. With no air quotes for Portland, Oregon, axis of evil 
So you can see that. Portland can't see that. With no axes of evil or sworn common enemy, we have to rely on something other than fear and hatred and unforgiveness to socially cohere around the common goal of seeing the kingdom of God spread. We have to work for something other than fear and hatred, which are wonderful adhesives to community. It keeps people together. We are the common offended ones. We are the ones who are being attacked. It creates cohesion. And Jesus is going to say there's nothing left of enemy. There's nothing left of evil. You are to treat those categories as if you treat anyone else, including your people. No defense is needed, Jesus would say. Turn the other cheek, the unimaginable. We don't need an enemy to make us one. Love makes us one. Anybody remember the movie from the 90s called Wag the Dog? Any political science? There are zero people in this room. Come on, I know the Barlows know Wag the Dog. We get together and have tacos and quote lines from Wag the Dog. For some of you, it's Princess Bride. For the Barlows, it's Wag the Dog. Political family, what can I say? But you remember the movie, it's a candidate, it's a, an incumbent, I think, actually, who's running for office and something from his closet leaks to the public forum and now the conversation is about his whatever, his indiscretions, and so they have to come up somehow and create an enemy so that they can get people back behind him. And so literally, they stage against a green screen something that they know Americans will viscerally respond to, and suddenly it's not important what this candidate does in his free time. We've got an enemy, right? Honestly, this is actually how America works, Hang with me now. If this is offensive, hang with me. We can talk after. You see, we're not a single ethnic group of people. There is no ancient bloodline that makes us American. We are a collection and an amalgamation of immigrant peoples. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. We, none of us were here first, but we are a collection of people. We need an enemy to bring us together. We need something to rally behind. Social cohesion only happens when we have something to hate. Did you know that on the eve of the Civil War, there actually was a senator who said, I know, instead of fight this war against ourselves, let's declare war on Spain and France. Let's get a common enemy. Then South and North will be one because we can hate them again. It's the American story. You can follow the ebb and flow when we have clear enemies and when we don't. We excel when we're coming down on something that we can commonly hate. But it didn't start with America. It predates America by a long shot. In ancient Rome, there was a first century Roman historian wrote this, descended into internal strife because of the destruction of the enemy. Rome is now turning its knives on itself. When Carthage is defeated, Rome begins to execute itself and fold in on itself. This domestic cohesion is the result of maintaining categories of evil and enemy. It's what informs our identity. And boy, I wish I could just say that it stopped there. In the evangelical church, let me tell you, it is very disturbing to realize how desperately we need something to fight against. If it's not the evolution in the, in the scopes monkey trials, well, then it's, it's the sexual revolution. If it's not that, it's, it's racism, it's color. If it's not that, it's abortion or the LGBT community. As if we need something to rally against. Jesus is going to undermine all of this. You see, he's staging a full frontal assault on how we construct identity. And this is going to get him killed. This is the death of the thinking that says we're a thing because we're not that thing. You see what I'm saying? We lay down our lives even for people who wish us harm. This is the people that Jesus is calling. You see, this is not a lecture on generosity. 
I don't think Jesus is simply saying, you've heard it said you have to be generous. Jesus is saying, you've got to be generous to everyone. He's not raising up a church of pushovers and easily smitten and easily sued and people who give and never take care of themselves. He's raising up a group of people who understand that what makes us something is not that we believe ourselves to be something other than everything else. Do you realize, Paul uses this language, there was a time when we were enemies of God. And not even that was something that heaven couldn't overcome. He's taking away the crutches. He's taking away our mechanism of exclusion and inclusion. He's going to be the one to define who gets to sit where. So my question for you today is this. Are you ready to follow this young revolutionary rabbi? Have you properly weighed the cost of what it might be like to follow this one? There's lots of lesser versions. There's lots of more tame iterations of Jesus and faith that you can follow that won't cost you much, that has lots of theological reasons why you're right and everything is justified. There's lots of that. But have you counted the cost of following this rabbi? He's going to take us places that are pretty frightening. What are you going to do when you lose your ability to decide who deserves to be loved and who doesn't? Then what are you going to do? But you don't understand it's not fair. This is two times in a row. But you don't understand that this isn't actually an evil person and heaven's going to say, somehow evil as a category that makes us justified crumbles at the cross. I can think of a few people that somehow ended up right in the mix with Jesus that would have been evil enemies at the time of Jesus. Think about the short man in the tree who literally transacts in such a way on the people, on the people of Israel to gain for himself wealth. Zacchaeus. Think of the one who hung on the cross next to Jesus on the very hill where he sacrificed his life for you and for me. No way that guy gets to get in. No way. He's a criminal and somehow he's in. We cleave to our definitions of evil and enemy. We hang on tight because they give us motivation. But Jesus drops us into a world where he says there are no limitations to that. He sets the table and we just simply serve. But here's the layering effect. And now we're going to move beyond this teaching because we're going to move into other parts where Jesus brings up the Old Testament. He does it differently, but this is the end of this formulation. You've heard it said, but I tell you. What used to be good enough no longer is, and that's exactly how it's supposed to work. You see, there was a time when women were looked at as property, where people of color were looked at as God's chosen to build our wealth. There was a time when there was biblical foundations for that. There was a time when kids weren't valued and where all of the, there was a time when immigrants were looked at as invaders. There was a time for all of that, but truth and revelation move in a direction and it's always outside of yourself and it's always to open your hands, open-handed, not tight-fisted. It's supposed to be that way. Don't be disturbed when truth lays down like sedimentary rock. That's the way it's supposed to be. You're actually doing it right if you're constantly laying down your notions and pushing straight into those things that you thought you didn't have to address, those people that were clearly not worth your time. You're actually doing it right. You see, truth is supposed to accumulate. What used to be good enough no longer is. That was true in the time of Jesus, and that's true today. I hope that disturbs you. You say, no, I go to a church that preaches the word. I don't know what we preach, but that's pretty much the word. Um, we could doll it up. We could put lipstick on that pig and make it dance and tell you that, oh, this is great. The reality is this, is, this Jesus is gonna, it's gonna cost us everything. And you know where it's gonna hurt? It's gonna hurt right in your isms, your sexism, your racism, your genderism, your ageism. It's gonna hurt in your pocketbook. 
it's going to require you to define to the people around you how you've lost your mind, how they too fit. We've got a family at ANC who moved across the country to serve an apartment building of Muslims because all they knew is that in their heart they had something less than full love for them, so let's go figure this out. That's what the gospel is going to require us to do. Push into those places. And that's what I got for you this morning. It's been a hard, long week. You can cut the 40, 42 seconds. So I, th- I think you owe me like 78 bucks, Trey. <laughs> we're, we're super not polished and we're super goofy about these things, but like when we finally talked about that, can you guys see the clock? You saw the clock back there? I got 32 seconds left. When we finally, Trey's like, look, we're going to, yeah, right, I'm going to tell that because I told that in first service, but these guys are way better looking. Don't tell 930 that, but. Um, so we're super stressed out about getting two services going, right, and getting all the stuff so we buy this little clock and we're thinking, and so it's been one of those crazy, crazy weeks. We're trying to buy and sell a house. Anybody ever try to do that? Shoot me in the face four times. I don't understand why this is so hard, but it's like pulling, it's like putting a clothes hanger down your throat and pulling your guts out, sort of. And then you get to do that again. Anyway, during this week, I completely lost my marbles. I was super stressed out about paint colors. Couldn't find the paint to match. Been there and would just raise a me too hand trying to do everything we can. So I'm losing my marbles with my child. And Natalie, my oldest daughter, who's the better parent in our family, comes and taps in and says, Dad, tap out. All I know is I got to go for a jog or I'm going to lose it. So I go to my closet and I'm so anxious that I slam the door on my foot, gouge the top of my foot. Now I'm bleeding all over the carpet of a house somebody else is going to have to buy. But being the hard-headed human that I am, do you think I didn't go for my run? You bet I went for my run. My whole shoe's bloody. My socks, my wife hasn't seen that sock yet. It's hiding somewhere under the washer because that's how hard, that's the week I've had. But I'm just going to say part of the week I've had, I sat down and wrote an entire six-page sermon on this verse, but I, but I took it in the wrong direction. This is not easy. This is hard stuff, y'all. This is hard stuff. I'm going to tell you this. Take a long look. You know how carpenters measure twice and cut once? Take a long look at this rabbi before you follow this one. Take a long look. Don't be the hasty one to throw your hat in just because it feels right. The one who runs down in that teen mania event and screams, I want the cross in front of all your friends. Don't be the hasty one. I'm telling you, count the cost. Count the cost because everything that you think you own and everything you think you have amassed and everything you think you're certain of is subject to the layering truth and revelation that moves us towards people that swirls in the train of this rabbi. So this is the Jesus we follow. Why don't you join me on your feet? Band, you can find your way to the stage. And Jen, why don't you lead us in our communion liturgy? Thank you, Jason. I don't know if we're uh, allowed to say this, but um, it's just sometimes when I survey faith and the landscape of the church and there are days and uh where i say "Mm, is this even real (laughs) it's okay if you ever say that are we all maniacs are we lunatics this is just bananas um have i given my life to something that isn't true it's jesus that brings me back home every time and it's this kind of teaching and it's brutal oh it's so brutal i I almost wish I would have heard the other six pages of it, Jason. It's just brutal teaching. And yet, the kind of Savior who says this grace goes as far to the edges as you can imagine, who insists that the gospel is for the oppressor too. 
I'm telling you, if he'd have stopped one inch short of that, I don't know that I could follow him with my life. Anything less than what he has called us to isn't good news. And you know why? I'm the oppressor. I've been that person on the far edge as recently as this week. So thank goodness this is what he calls us to, this hard path. Um, because you can rest assured that Jesus' mercy extends to you too.